0: Hey, everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast
1: here to feed your curiosity. I'm Will. I'm Skip, and today we are thrilled to have Jonah Goldberg with us. Jonah is a fellow and ASNIST chair in Applied Liberty at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior editor at National Review. He was named by The Atlantic as one of the top 50 political commentators in America and was named by the Conservative Political Action Conference as the Robert J. Novak Journalist of the Year. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonah. I'm happy to be here. To get started, we like to
0: ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share such a moment with us? Ah, uh, gosh. Um,
2: you know, I mean, there are a bunch. Uh, you know, there are deaths. My brother died. My father died. Um, there's marriage, which is on the other end of the spectrum of, of pleasant memories. Um, those are kind of big ones in life. I guess sort of professionally, one that might be more interesting than, or at least less morose, um might be how I sort of fell over backwards into becoming a, a pundit political writer. It largely had to do with the fact that George will called me an idiot um, uh, years ago I was um, uh, I got my start my first job in Washington was as a research assistant at the American Enterprise Institute where I'm there now as a scholar or fellow or whatever they call me and um, I had to leave for 10 years before I could come back and and do that which was a little strange sort of turned me into it it sort of felt like going back to the college that you went to as an undergrad as a professor because now i couldn't hit on the interns or anything and um but so ai used to have these regular big muckety-muck speeches called the bradley lecture series and george will came and talked and this is when george had this big thing about uh term limits and that was his big idea at the time i think he's backtracked since then and uh at one point I asked, during the Q&A, instead of limiting democratic choices and, and, and forcing these people out, which would have also the effect of making the bureauc- the, the staff much more powerful, but that's a actual policy argument, um, want it make more sense to go back to the Founding Fathers' vision and make the districts much, much smaller. And that way you would have like five or 6,000 congressmen. And George Will said um, that may be the dumbest idea he'd ever heard, I can't imagine why there would be a good reason to do that, and um, I was so enraged and so embarrassed that I spent um, months thinking about, reading about why this was a great idea. And, um, and so the very first thing I ever wrote for publication, other than like the school newspaper, was a thing I, back then we had, uh, you submitted things to the Wall Street Journal by mail. Um, you could also by fax, but it would get lost. Uh, there was no email at the time. And it got accepted, and they sat on it for a long time, and um, they ended up running it the uh, day after the 1992 election. So I was on the op-ed page. It was was Newt Gingrich, Bill Bennett, and Jonah Goldberg and with my idea about why we should expand Congress to 6,000 or 7,000 people. And it taught me a bunch of lessons that whenever I talk to students, I try to impart. Um, First is, if you want to be a writer, you got to write. But second is, if you want to be a writer, you have to rely rely on anything that gives you the juice to write. If, if you're annoyed, if you're angry, if you have something to prove, that is um, maybe your best muse, at least for the kind of stuff that I do. Um, and uh, um, and lastly, if you're just starting out, you want to write things that other people aren't writing because. Um, let's face it, let's say, I don't know if you guys want to be journalists when you get out of here. If you start submitting pieces to uh, newspaper op-ed pages on you know, NAFTA or the, whatever the issue of the day is, or like t- today we're recording this when Trump just spoke to the UN, I'll be indelicate. No one cares what your opinion is, right? And so you either have to um, write seriously about weird topics or weirdly about serious topics, to separate yourself out from everybody else when
1: you don't have a resume or a reputation um, to fall back on. That's fascinating, and just as a, a little follow-up there, do you still stick by that idea that we should expand Congress to 6,000 or 7,000 people, or is that kind of something? I go back you know, and forth about it. Yeah. I've been thinking
2: about revisiting it lately. I mean, <laughs> it is insane. You know, The reason why we have 435 Congress people uh, it's basically because the fire marshal says so. Mm-hmm. That's as many people will fit in the friggin' room, which is idiotic, right? And so like the one time that George Washington actually spoke up during the deliberations about the – at the Constitutional Convention um, was to say that a district of I think 40,000 uh, citizens was way too big for a congressman to get to know his own district and they really should shrink it down to 30,000. Now I think the average district is somewhere around 650 or 700,000 people. And you can explain some of that with technology and transportation's easier and all the rest. But I think if you if you uh, made the district smaller, first of all, you would not, gerrymandering would no longer be a problem. You cannot make a district that is unrepresentative of 30,000 people because it's just too granular. And, you know, stock markets, all sorts of things do stuff electronically. I don't know why you would have to do it that way. And it's not like anybody debates in like, Congress anyway. So, um, so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to it. There are problems with it. But, uh, yeah, I still like the idea.
0: Your most recent book, Suicide of the West, to pivot this towards your work more, uh-huh. warned against populism as one of the things that was a threat to our civilization. It sounds to me like a fundamental reshaping of one of the branches of our federal government so that people have a much easier voice of input rather than the kind of established channels of knowledge is an idea that some people might call populist. What do you think of as the difference between you know, one hand's uh, democracy on one hand and on the other? another man's populism. Sure. So
2: um, if you go back to the Greek, all populism really means is peopleism, right? And like populus populi. Um, and uh, there's a reason why we consider why democracy and populism are different things. They're, they're different words for different things. Democracy presupposes a certain amount of a process of deliberation, of debate. I've always argued that democracy is about disagreement, not about agreement. Populism is essentially a fun it's fundamentally a form of identity politics which says that the crowd or the mob or a specific group it almost populism uses the rhetoric of the people but almost every time you ever look at any populist movement it's never about the people it is about a subset of people who claim to be more authentic more deserving uh, more real american or real greek it doesn't matter what the country is than the other people and uh so ultimately populism is about passion rather than reason. And I'm I'm a bit I'm not a huge fan of democracy, to be brutally honest. I mean, democ- pure democracy, un- unalloyed and untempered by Republican institutions, um, and the rule of law, is simply the doctrine that says that fifty-one percent of the people can pee in the cornflakes of forty-nine percent of the people. Um Populism is basically the logic of, of, of the mob that finds its rightness and its righteousness within itself rather than by outside any other um, rules or principles. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, which I might mention tonight, comes from William Jennings Bryan where he says – most famous populist in the 19th century for listeners who don't know. Um, he says – The people of Nebraska are for free silver. Therefore, I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later, right? Mm. That is not how arguments are supposed to work in a democracy. Um, But it is the way
1: arguments work with, with populism. It's fascinating you bring that up, and and one quote that that struck me from you, uh, I believe this was on a Morning Joe interview you did recently. It was uh, you said, "Feelings are trumping facts," which is the hallmark of romanticism. Mm-hmm. It is the elevation of passion over principles that de- defines all of these mass movements. Which kind of gets into what you're mentioning. And it reminded me of the quote from Dan- Daniel Patrick Moynihan, famous uh, senator from New York. You're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. How do you see that kind of playing into today's uh, own debate? You mentioned some of the some of the reasons earlier, but can you kinda, yeah. So Robert, I mean.
2: Uh, I've learned both from the process of writing this book and having arguments with my editor and then going out on the hustings trying to sell it, no one wants to talk about romanticism. Uh, everyone's <laughs> eyes glaze over and they're like, I, didn't, I thought we weren't going to be tested on this kind of attitude. Um, but all I mean for this purpose is for, of romanticism. Romanticism emerges as a response to the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was perceived, rightly or wrongly, as being too strict, too rule-bound, too abstract, uh, too cold and machine-thinking. Um, and romanticism was the, is the, is, is, should be understood as a rebellion against being controlled by abstract principles and rules and instead turning inward towards your own feelings and passions. Right. And my argument is that the romantic era never went away. Um, it is something that runs straight through the human heart. You see it constantly in popular music. You see it in all the popular culture. Uh, you see it in the young at all times. The rebelliousness of youth is, is classically romantic. Like, you just don't understand me, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we more and more in our culture, and, and corporate capitalist America is a big part of the problem here, we tell people that the only really uh, real source of authenticity in our lives are our own feelings. Go with your gut. Stay true to yourself. We never count, contemplate the possibility that saying, stay stay true to yourself is terrible advice to give to an asshole or an idiot. And, um, you know, what we're supposed to tell people is here is what good character means. Um, Here are what your ideals are supposed to be. Let's try to live up to them rather than say, well, my own gut says I should, you know, if it feels good, do it. You know, I was listening to uh, Sean Hannity recently, something I don't do often. And uh, his radio show begins with this spiel about, um, you know, you can't live your life worrying about what other people think about you. Now, I get the point, and I give my daughter that kind of advice from time to time. But that is also precisely the advice that Hannibal Lecter would follow, right? I mean, that is the advice of serial killers, too. Um, you're supposed to worry about what other people think about you. You're supposed to worry about what your community thinks about you. You're supposed to worry about what history thinks about you. And there was a time when you were supposed to worry about what God thinks about you. But we've sort of all become our own gods listening to our own inner truths, and that's a problem. And to get less highfalutin about it, the problem with our politics these days is are, are there, there are lots of them. We can't get into all of them, but part of it is is that um, we are all sort of self-sorting in various ways, so that um, we don't have we sort of curate our lives so we don't have to expose ourselves to ideas that we don't like, and so we retreat to places like Facebook or cable news or Twitter or all of the above, all the above, and. Um instead of being challenged with uh, competing facts or competing arguments, uh, we seek to have our biases confirmed. And that's a big problem for a democracy.
0: Does it worry you that that desire to think through something, decide what your idea on it is, come to a conclusion, and then only seek out reaffirmation of that conclusion might be a weakness of the very scientific method, enlightenment-style thinking – that you herald, and that it creates a kind of almost gardener's impulse, some sociologists have called it, to tailor your society and your world to just what's true and not expose yourself to other things? That's a really interesting question, and I could go a lot of different ways with it. It's a a good
2: question. Um, I'll counter it this way. Uh, I am against all forms of monism, or monism. Uh, There's a scene, I brought this up a couple times on my podcast, uh, there's a scene in the movie called City Slickers where um, the character Curly says to Billy Crystal, you know, only one thing in life really matters. And, you, and, and once you figure out what that is, then you don't have to worry about anything else. And Billy Crystal says, okay, but what's that one thing? And he says, that's what you have to figure out for yourself. That's garbage. I mean, it's a great scene. It's garbage. Um, I'm not against all forms of romanticism. I'm not against all forms of emotion. I'm not against, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, pluralism of any kind, or, 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 or I'm not, I, let me back up. I believe in pluralism, right? I believe that, um, that all valuable things will over, will at some point or in some moment, um, impinge on other valuable things. Principles can be in conflict. Part of being a conservative is understanding that all important decisions in life um, involve so- some kind of trade-off. That's true in politics. That's true in personal life. If I decided that my wife were my one thing, um, I would be a terrible husband and a terrible father, and I wouldn't be a good provider in any way. If I thought my job was my one thing, ditto. Right. Um, the same thing goes. And so that's why I don't like totalizing ideologies of any kind. I don't like nationalism. I don't like populism. Um, I don't like, you know, democratism. If you want to use coin a coin word, because I think all things need to be tempered. And so the, the way I look at these kinds of things is, um, all poisons are determined by the dose. Uh, and so things like nationalism, for instance, um, Nationalism is kind of like salt. You need a pinch of it to bring the meal together, to make things, you know, express themselves in their best way. A little too much and you start to ruin the meal. Way too much and it's literally lethal. Um, that's sort of that principle. I think is true of all things. So I'm all in favor of figuring out what those things in life are really important to you, and figuring out a way to sort of bolster those beliefs. But I also think that you should also expose yourself to things that challenge those beliefs, because that's the only way you can. You know, separate the wheat from the chaff and all sorts of areas of life.
1: So you brought up earlier the role of echo chambers now in our society. You're able to, you know, as mentioned earlier, find your own facts, find the match your own opinion. Um, and and just speaking from your background as as actually a journalist, you were co-editor of your college newspaper at Goucher. Um, you now write for the National Review. You're featured in publications like the L.A. Times, um, read all across the country. Um, where do you think the future of the press is headed? Is it a concerning future and what are some ways to combat that echo chamber phenomenon
2: yeah that's it's tough um you know i often tell young would-be journalists that this is the most exciting time in my lifetime or maybe in the last hundred years to go into journalism um there's only one real drawback it's very hard to figure out how to get paid for it and um but you can do things like out of college you can do stuff with an iphone that it used to take you 10 years and i have all sorts of resources to be able to do the the so i don't think any time in the near future are we going back to the sort of pre-1989 model where there were a few discrete powerful outlets that set the tone and temper for the entire national conversation Um, um i do think uh that has like with all other things that has that all good things come with um a dark cloud, and all all bad things come with a silver lining. There are good things and bad things about all of this stuff, um, but it is in in a in a perverse and strange way. You could argue that we're returning to the norm in American media life. In this sense, um, newspapers and magazines in this country, the mainstream media, for one, of a better term, was wildly more partisan in the 18th and 19th and early 20th century than it is today. Um, the idea of an objective newspaper or an objective reporting essentially emerges as a sort of a throw-off or an epiphenomenon from the phenomenon of um, technology. First, the telegraph, then radio, and then really TV. And Americans, because we're so in love with our gadgets and we have this technical mindset, we thought, oh, if we just put a camera on something, right, we could get rid of the intermediary of the reporter, get his biases out of it, and just show you You know what is going on. That's why the old TV show "You Are There" and that's why Walter Cronkite would end his broadcasts saying, "And that's the way it is." Right? He didn't say, "That's the news we thought was important," or "These are the things we thought you should know." He made this sort of ontological epistemological point. If you look at Europe, the European newspapers never went that way. You know, if you even today, you know, the London Times is sort of Tory, and the Telegraph is conservative, and the the Guardian's Bolshevik, and doesn't mean they're bad newspapers, but you just the reader knows more about where they're coming from and you know you're going to get a certain perspective on the news from that way. That in itself is not a terrible thing. The problem is is that there's so much partisan distrust that you know, it used to be in America, people like me, I grew up in a household that loved to criticize the New York Times. That didn't mean I thought everything they ran was a lie. It just meant we didn't like the spin that they put on it. Now, I know lots of conservatives who will just simply say, I don't need to read the New York Times because they just lie. That's not, I mean, I'm not saying the New York Times gets everything right, but that's not what they're in it for. And the same thing, and my God, the number of people who just simply, if the National Review reported tomorrow that bears are using our national forests as toilets. Um, you know, liberals, that's a lie. That's not true. Bears don't crap in the woods. You know, I mean, it's, it's, that's the problem that we have, is just a fundamental breakdown in trust outside
0: of our own bubbles. So you're an important figure at both the American Enterprise Institute and the National Review. And yet I can't get a raise, but yeah, go on. Um, (laughs) People who know those institutions know where they're coming from, just like people who read the New York Times know where it's coming from. How do you mitigate against that distrust of the other side? And do you think it's an important part of your institutional role to have outreach to readers or contributors at other publications who come from a different place on the spectrum.
2: Well, I mean, I, so, I mean, there really is a real apples and oranges thing between AEI and National Review. You know, at AEI, we have... Um, there's no party line. We got people who voted for Hillary. We have, you know, liberals and all sorts of things. We are a free market think tank that is dedicated to free markets, uh, free trade, strong national defense, and a few other things, but... Um, you know in Arthur Brooks a, there's a big push about you know human dignity all dignity and all that kind of stuff but all you're expected to do there particularly among the serious sort of academic scholars is do really good work in your field and then you can write or say anything you want outside of your field it's not quite the same thing at national review i mean we have a lot of freedom but we're all expected to be conservatives yeah. right? and you wouldn't want to be a conservative not a non-conservative and work at national review there are many different kinds of conservatives at national review and there are many divisions over things like Donald Trump on down um, but you know my colleague Ramesh Panuru who's actually both at National Review and at AI um, you know he always likes to say that he wants to tackle liberals best arguments not their worst ones and i think that's a certainly a really laudable way to go about your life which is to say i'm not going to pick the weakest link in the chain, or pick the dumbest representative of the other side, I'm going to deal in good faith with their best arguments. And um, I will admit, from time to time, it's just too much fun not to point out the, the really worst aspects of the other side, but, and I think there's a role for that. But as a general proposition, I think it's better. The role of opinion journalism generally, um, the, the best analogy I always have for it is it's like a court of law. Everyone knows the prosecution's biased towards conviction, right? And everyone knows the defense is biased towards acquittal. But there are rules about what you do in the courtroom. You can't lie. Um, If you don't care, if you don't address the other side's best arguments, you'll lose, right? Um, And you have to have a certain amount of civility civility and respect for everybody involved. Um, I didn't always have the civility and respect part nailed, but I've been, you know, been trying to grow on some of that stuff. And and that's why I've often argued that opinion journalism is – in many ways, the best kind of journalism, because you actually know where the reader is coming from. They're saying, hey, look, the other side says this. I think they're wrong. And here's why. And the way you can tell whether somebody's good at what they're doing or whether they're a hack is how fairly they, they describe the other side's position. And if they offer a caricature or a straw man and then destroy it, they're really not engaging in a good democratic argument they're doing performance art and one of the problems i have one of the reasons why i'm on my you know my growth journey um excuse me while i vomit uh is um i think conservative the the conservative movement or the right wing in america whatever you want to call it um has veered too far way too far into the um, performance art rather than argument stuff and i would rather be part of the solution than the problem on that.
1: So we have time for one more question and it's a question we ask all of our guests. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is your personal definition of success and what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? Yeah.
2: So, um, I go back and forth on these kinds of questions. I've changed, I've changed my mind about some of it partly because I'm, you know, I have a 15 year old daughter and I've been pretty successful in my own field. Um, um, And I've seen some loved ones pass away. And um, so, you know, David Brooks makes this distinction between uh, living a life geared for your resume and a life geared for a eulogy. And I've been to a lot of – not a lot, but I've been to a few funerals in Washington where people read really impressive resumes and don't have any nice stories about what a great person the deceased was. And their own families don't really tell anything caring or loving about them. And so I think, um, particularly when you're young, it's easy to just get, particularly when you're at a, you know an elite school and all the rest, to get kind of tunnel visioned on the resume part. Everyone's in such a friggin' hurry, um, which I think is kind of a mistake. Um, you know, the great thing about being young is uh, um, you can afford to be entrepreneurial with your time. Uh, you know, if I after college I went off to Prague and I taught English. Right? I wanted to be a starving writer, sort of batted 500, I didn't starve, and I didn't write. Um, and um, I didn't do it for very long, but it was one of the best things I ever did, right? And I've been dining out on it ever since. The things that actually give you a sense of happiness in life, there are only about five or six of them. It's um, faith, family, friends. Um, genes are a big part of it because some people are just born miserable bastards. And... Um, and the most important one which I've really taken to heart in the last few years is this thing called earned success. So, you can become a millionaire and have a high sense of earned success, but it's not really about money. You can be a stay-at-home mom, you can be a nun, you can be a, a youth basketball coach, there are all sorts of things you can have you can do to pursue earned success. What gives you a sense of earned success is that feeling that you were needed, that you were belong that you, you belonged to something that if you died tomorrow, you'd be sorely missed. If you didn't show up for work, someone would, someone would be concerned. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's really important for young people to hold on to the friends they make now because you can't invent new old friends. Um, and I've been very lucky on some of that stuff. Um, but I think that the, you know, just to sort of tie it in with the stuff I was saying before, I wouldn't say there's like one thing that's key to success and all right. In that sense, you do have to like look in yourself and say, what do I want to do? Um, but you shouldn't think in a straight line way about it. One of the best things I ever did was quote unquote waste three or four or five years being a television producer. Because I learned that I didn't want to be a television producer. Sometimes you have to go through the doors that lead you the wrong way to figure out what the right way is for you. And you shouldn't freak out about it. And there are going to be some people you meet who start making money really, really fast, and you'll be jealous about it. And there will be other people who don't care about money and go on these fantastic adventures, and you'll be really jealous about that. And because Facebook friggin' sucks and it's a way to, it's a basically an envy machine that helps us curate our lives to make us all seem happier than we really are, it'll probably be worse for your generation than it was for mine. That's all okay, you know. But to tie it back to what I was saying before, I think you should look at your life more as portfolio management than, you know, than a lottery. Don't bet all on hitting it big on one set of numbers, right? Instead, you want to have a healthy balance between friends, family, faith, if that's your thing, um, um, experiences. Um, If you could have a, uh, you know, I often say, uh, I used to really say this when I was younger and I don't say it quite the same way to my daughter anymore, but I used to say, you know, if it makes a good story, it was worth doing. That can steer you wrong sometimes, trust me. Uh, But you know, I don't want to sound like Mr. Miyagi, but I think it's balance, You know, balancing these different aspects of your lives and, and not letting some of them atrophy for the sake of some of the others.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Jonah. That's all the time we have today. It's great to be here. Thank you. To our listeners, don't forget to stay hungry.